Merry Christmas. My wife has been telling me for now three or four days that I can't say Merry Christmas anymore because it's not Christmas anymore. But I haven't seen most of you guys since Christmas. And also, I'm free in Christ to say whatever I want about Christmas. <laughs> so, um, it's, it's just good to see you guys. Um, so, we began to study Samuel 532 days ago. The July before last. And I know what you're thinking... But look, it would have taken John Piper two decades to go through this much text, so I don't want to hear about it, okay? Anyways, I don't know what it's been like for you, but in my family, we've celebrated 10 birthdays since we started this series. In other words, um, a lot has happened. Part of the difficulty with studying long books like Samuel is that life happens in between the chapters, and you can easily lose your grip on a lot of the most important takeaways. Today, for instance, we've likely not even thought about the life of David in detail for a month. And in between this point and that, most of us have traveled and all of us have celebrated Christmas with our friends and families, which is itself kind of an overwhelming experience. So I think it's worth pausing for a moment today to take a breather. I want to take a a minute to stop and to get out a roadmap and to evaluate our surroundings. And I think a good place to start is the shadows. We decided early on that this series would be called Tracing the Shadows of the King. And that's what we've tried to do. A lot of our time has been spent reflecting on aspects of the story of Samuel and the story of David and then looking forward to see how the shape of these stories might remind us of the work of Christ, the true King of Israel, the better son of David. Today, I want to explore these these connections a bit more intentionally for two reasons. First, I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees. This story is about to become complex in a way we haven't yet experienced. Armies chasing armies through wilderness and villages over mountains and through valleys Witches and spirits and betrayal and treason and murder. Pagan alliances and foreign wars and lies and destructions and plunder. Seriously, it's a very good story. But to this point, the author has focused our attention on only a few moving pieces. Now the camera is going to pan and we're going to be introduced to the full scene. When that happens, I want you to be prepared for it. I want you to remember the most important moments vividly. And then the second reason is because we're about to encounter more nuance than we probably feel comfortable with. We like things, I like things at least, to be squared away. Black and white. Good and evil. That's why children's stories are often so simple. White knight versus red dragon. The brave hero versus the wicked villain, right? These sort of categories are simple and clean and unambiguous. Reality is more messy than these stories. And the scriptures reflect reality perfectly. To this point, we spent a lot of time reflecting on David's righteousness and his breathtaking zeal and his faithfulness and his covenant loyalty. 
The author has made a point of setting David apart, distinct from the faithlessness of Saul, distinct from the faithlessness of Israel, because David is like the Messiah, but David is not the Messiah. And the author wants, to, wants us to see both of these things clearly. Since we began reading, we've largely explored how David is like the Messiah. But not long from now, we'll begin to get glimpses of his sin and his failures and his short-sightedness. And eventually, we'll see how the sin of David will ruin the kingdom of Israel because the author is trying to teach us how David is not like the Messiah. Now, threading that needle... Understanding the degree to which a shadow is like the coming Christ, while keeping in mind the ways in which a shadow isn't like the coming Christ, is a work of interpretation that we call typology. Everybody say, typology. I just wanted you to say something, because eventually you're going to fall asleep. So, Everybody repeat after me. Typology. Typology. See, I just made you do it again. So to do typology well, we need to understand typology well. And that's what today is all about. It's time to stop and to get out the roadmap and to evaluate our surroundings because we absolutely cannot do the hard work of interpreting this book well without a firm grasp on typology. So since we began reading the story of Samuel, we've used words like shadow and pattern and type. All of these are terms that the Bible uses to refer to the same thing. Types are present in every book of the Bible. Types are the threads that interweave all the stories of the Bible. And you cannot, and I know this is a bold statement, but I feel confident in it, you cannot understand the Bible without understanding types. And the study of types is what we call typology. Perhaps the best way to start is to define the word type. That's a lot of... It didn't look like so much information when I was putting that together, so don't get overwhelmed yet. I'm going to read you a definition that I think is workable, and then I'm going to work through it piece by piece, all right? So just track with me. A type is a narrative feature that authors use on purpose to teach readers that historical events foreshadow the life and work of Jesus. And I'm going to repeat that because I think it's important. A type is a narrative feature that authors use on purpose to teach readers that historical events foreshadow the life and work of Jesus. So I'm going to leave that definition on the screen, and I hope you can read it. Um, And then I'm going to just go bit by bit and break it down for you, okay? So first, a type is a narrative pattern, a narrative feature. Read that first bit again. A type is a narrative feature. In other words, a type is a feature of the story that has a distinct shape, a part of the story that has a pattern that emerges while reading, or a figure who is unique, or a place that's noteworthy. More specifically, a type is a feature that emerges when reading the books of the Old Testament. To qualify as a type, the pattern that emerges must have a distinctive shape. 
and distinctive elements that stand out from the rest of the story and prompt the readers to ask questions. So, move on to the next bit. A type is a narrative feature that authors use on purpose. In other words, you aren't reading the new, a new meaning into the story when you're identifying types. This isn't a mystical sense of the passage unfamiliar to the author or unfamiliar to the audience. No, a type is a feature of the story that's put there on purpose. The author means for you to see it, and that's important. And the author means for you to look forward when you see it and to reflect on what this might mean about the coming Messiah. I want to clarify something here. What I've said just implies that the authors of the Old Testament knew about the coming Christ and were writing in part to teach about the coming Christ. Here's what I mean. The scriptures were written by authors who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, all of the authors of scripture looked forward to the coming kingdom of God. That that statement is unqualified. All of the authors of the scriptures look forward to the coming kingdom of God. And all of the authors of scriptures looked forward to a coming king. Who would rescue the people of God. That's universal. Every single author of the Old Testament looked forward to the coming kingdom and looked forward to the coming king. But they did not have all the details about that king, like who he was or when he would arrive or how he would rescue God's people. We know that because Peter says the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So the Holy Spirit knew all of the details about the life and work of Christ in advance, but not necessarily the authors of the Old Testament. And the Father, who's sovereign over all, was carefully working in history to orchestrate the events that the authors were writing about so that they would foreshadow the coming life and work of Jesus. So we can safely say without hesitation that the authors of Scripture, both human and divine, shaped their narratives on purpose, pointing forward to the coming Christ. All right, so that's the first half of the sentence. Are we tracking? It's going to slow down a little bit, I promise. All right, the next bit. A type is a narrative feature that authors use on purpose to teach readers. In other words, you're meant to see it and you're meant to reflect on it and you're meant to make the connection from that historical event or figure or place to the life and work of the coming Messiah. I want to say this explicitly so you don't miss it. You are not reading the books of the Old Testament correctly if you don't follow the type to the antitype. You are not... Reading the books of the Old Testament correctly if you don't follow the type to the antitype. A lot of people, including a lot of evangelical academics, have drawn a category distinction here that I think is super unhelpful. 
All of the linguistic and grammatical and literary work done in the passage, in other words, all the work of reading, they placed in a category called exegesis. But the discipline of following the type to the anatype, the work of recognizing patterns that emerge and following those patterns to the life life and work of Jesus, they place that in a category that they call biblical theology. Now, the, the problem with that approach is the implication that you can read a passage thoroughly and understand it completely without recognizing and understanding the patterns. But if the author, and listen, if the author placed those patterns there on purpose, and if the author means for you to see them, and if the author means for you to reflect on them and to look forward to the life and work of Jesus with them, then you have not thoroughly read and have not fully understood the passage if you don't do those things. Does it make sense? Okay, the last bit. A type is a narrative feature that, the, that authors use on purpose to teach readers that historical events foreshadow the life and work of Jesus. Look, all types are grounded in historical events or historical people or historical places or historical institutions. These things actually happened and they actually have meaning in their own context. The story of Samuel, for instance, was written to the people of Israel for a number of reasons. One of those reasons, yes, was to point them forward to the coming king. But it was also written to teach the people the reason they're in exile. It was also written to illustrate the consequences of breaking covenant with the one true God. It was also written to teach them about the futility of idolatry. And so it isn't enough to say merely that Samuel is about Jesus. And it isn't enough to believe that the life of David merely is just about Jesus. And yet we can say with confidence that the Father, who is sovereign over all, orchestrated historical events to foreshadow the life and work of Christ. And we can say with confidence that the Holy Spirit inspired the authors of the Scriptures to see those patterns, recognize them, and understand them. And we can can say with confidence that Jesus fulfilled those patterns in the redemption of His people. And in the equipping of His people to with the Spirit, to see those patterns and understand those patterns. So our goal as readers is to understand the passage on its own terms, in its own historical context, and then our job is to understand the shapes and patterns within that passage and follow these shapes and patterns to the life life and work of Jesus. Okay. So let's set that whole dusty book aside and get to work. It's the very long answer to the very short question, what is a type? And the discipline of typology is to recognize and understand types. Now, the trouble with typology is is that almost anything can seem like a type if you try hard and believe in yourself. So the hard work of typology is to test the patterns that you think you see and to identify which are indeed types that the Spirit intended for His church to see and understand, and which are merely patterns or places or people with no intended meaning in the narrative. So, in order 
for a narrative to qualify as a type, it, it must meet at least three criteria. And I'm going to give you the official name for all these criteria, and then I'm going to give you my name for them, which I think is an awful lot more approachable. Okay, so the first criterion, and the most basic, is correspondence. Can we flip to the next? There we go. Got it. Or as I like to call it, this thing seems like this other thing. So to qualify as a type, a pattern that emerges in the Old Testament must correspond with a pattern in the life of Christ on, an, on a profound level. It isn't enough that Jonah woke up and ate breakfast and went to work and came home and went to sleep. Even if Jesus woke up precisely at the same time and he preferred precisely the same meals. That's ordinary correspondence and that's not what we're talking about. It's extraordinary correspondence that we're after. Jonah surrendered to death. He spent three days in the depths. He rose again at impossible odds and he rescued a people. Jesus surrendered to death. He spent three days in the grave. He rose again and he rescued a people. That's extraordinary correspondence and that's what we're talking about. The second criterion is referred to as escalation or as I like to refer to it, this thing seems like that thing but so much bigger and better. So to qualify as a type, a pattern that emerges in the Old Testament must not only correspond with a pattern in the life and work of Christ, but it must do so in miniature. For example, it's not enough that the priests sacrifice and intercede for the people. Jesus indeed also sacrifices and intercedes for the people. But that correspondence isn't enough to qualify as a type. Once a year, the high priest enters the most holy place of the tabernacle, and he's carrying the blood of an innocent animal to atone for his sins and the sins of his, his people. And then he gets back to work after doing so because the people remain in sin. But Jesus, who is the great high priest, enters the most holy place before the throne of God himself. And he, he, he's carrying innocent blood, but it's not just the blood of animal, it's his own blood. And he brings it to the throne to atone for the sins of the people once for all, forever. And then he sits down at the right hand of God because the work of redemption is finished. You see? Christ's work is like the work of the high priest, but it's bigger and it's better. Correspondence and escalation. So the final criterion is referred to as biblical warrant. In other words, we don't call something a type unless an author of Scripture has prompted us to do so. What I'm not saying, and I want to be very clear here because there's been a lot of confusion in this area in the last 20 years. What I'm not saying is that we cannot call something a type unless an author of the New Testament has explicitly referenced that same passage or that same pattern and said the words, this is a type. That's too restrictive. The scope and direction of the New Testament recommends to us a typological reading that extends beyond just a few texts that the authors explicitly call types. However, we can't just call anything a type as long as we feel that it corresponds and escalates. It's important to take heed 
of the broad direction of the writers of the New Testament. For instance, we're told explicitly about the sacrificial system as a type, the tabernacle as a type, Adam and Melchizedek and David and Solomon as types. It's important to recognize which types are made explicit and which types are noted implicitly and, and, and build a framework with which the authors are approaching these patterns before we confidently assert that something is or is not a type. Right? We're just following their logic. Does that make sense? Okay. So, we've defined type and we've discussed how to identify types. A type is a narrative feature that authors use on purpose to teach readers that historical events foreshadow the life and work of Jesus. And we recognize those types according to correspondence, escalation, and biblical warrant. We're tracking... See, you know what? You thought this would be like sermon light because like we're only four days away from Christmas. But I just want to dive back in. So before we move on to the rise of David, I want to show you a few examples of typological interpretation taken directly from the New Testament. Okay? Because I want you to be confident not only that this is a tool that the authors of the New Testament used regularly to understand the Scriptures, but... I want you to feel confident that this is a tool that they meant for us to use as well. Also, I want to model the way they use this in the way we approach the book of Samuel. So, I'm going to read from two passages. You can turn there. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to have it on the screen, but it's going to be a small letter because I didn't anticipate exactly um, very well. So the first one's coming from Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Correspondence. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, how much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many? And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Escalation. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many more will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Biblical warrant. Well, let's do one more. 
This is from Hebrews 9. This is... (laughs) Sorry. Sorry about that. The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way to the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to the arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats, and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, correspondence, and escalation. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Correspondence and escalation. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that all who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Correspondence, escalation, biblical warrant. So we've just read two passages, both of which direct our attention to patterns in the Old Testament that foreshadow the life and the work of Jesus. And in both cases, the author points out this pattern corresponds with the work of Christ. And in both cases, the author points out that this pattern is escalated in the work of Christ. Correspondence and escalation. And just by virtue of these biblical authors highlighting the patterns themselves, we have biblical warrants to explore them. Correspondence, escalation, and biblical warrant. That's our criteria. And that's what we're looking for in the story of David. So, let's turn back to the text of Samuel and let's explore how types might be materialized and what those types might say about the coming Christ. We good? If we search for types in the rise of David, the simplest way to begin, I think, is to find a biblical warrant to validate that pattern in the first place. Now, I'm about to throw a lot of different passages your way, but I'm not going to reference any of them. I have a manuscript here, which is a bunch of footnotes, okay? So if you're interested in just tracing every single one of these things to their text and exploring them further, just give me a holler. I'll I'll put them on the city. And this time I really will put them on the city. Sometimes I tell you that and I don't. Luckily, finding biblical warrant to establish a pattern, a type between David and Christ is super simple. Because Jesus himself and all of the writers of the gospel and several of of the writings, uh, uh, several of the epistles look back 
on the life of David as a shadow of the life and work of Christ. Matthew, in the first book of the New Testament, refers to Jesus as the son of David ten times. Mark does it three times. Luke does it four times. Jesus himself points back to patterns in the life of David to justify his own actions and suggests that David's prophecies are about uh, David's prophecies about the coming Messiah were about him. Luke initiates his gospel account by suggesting that all the prophecies about a coming son of David were pointing forward to Jesus. When Peter proclaims the gospel to the public for the first time, he claimed that David was looking forward to the coming Jesus in prophecy. Paul proclaims his messages to the synagogues dispersed throughout the Roman Empire that Jesus is the promised Messiah after the line of David. Romans begins, uh, Paul begins his great letter to the Romans by proclaiming Jesus to be the Christ who was, quote, descended from David according to the flesh. And he encourages Timothy in his final letter to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. And John, full of the Spirit, speaking the very words of the risen Christ in the last book of the Bible, refers to Jesus as the one who has the key of David. In other words, there's perhaps no more concrete and established shadow in the Old Testament than the life and work and writings of David. We've got lots and lots of biblical warrant to explore the rise of David and to search for patterns. So let's get to it. The story of David is called Samuel because the story begins with the miraculous birth of the prophet Samuel. Samuel's mother, Hannah, in many ways represented the situation of the people of Israel. She was barren. And she was mocked by her peers, and she was desperate. So Hannah cried out to the Lord for a child, and what follows bears an uncanny resemblance to the birth of the prophet John the Baptist. A barren woman yearns for a child. An appeal is made before God. God moves in power, and that child is born miraculously. God promises that this child will play a special role in the rescue of his people. The expected child is set apart for the work of God. The child grows up in the service of God, speaking prophetically over the people of Israel. And then the prophet anoints the coming king of Israel. This pattern is true of both Samuel, who precedes David, And John the Baptist, who precedes Jesus. And there's our correspondence. Now let's look for escalation. In the type, a barren woman who yearns for a child. But in the antitype, the pleas for mercy aren't blessed by a priest of God, which is what happened to Hannah. But they are coming from a priest of God, which is what happens in John the Baptist's birth. In the type, God grants the request as a part 
of his plan to rescue his people. But in the antitype, he sends an angel as a messenger to preach the good news of the final rescue of the people of God. In the type, the expected child will be set apart for the work of God. But in the antitype, the expected child will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. In the type, the miracle child will make way for a king. In the antitype, the miracle child will make way for the king of kings. Correspondence and escalation. So we can feel pretty confident that the birth and life of Samuel is a shadow of what's to come in the life and work of Jesus. So let's keep moving. Do you remember when David was anointed as king? Samuel had been sent by God to the house of Jesse. And although Jesse was asked to parade all of his sons before Samuel so that the Spirit might recognize the coming king, David wasn't even invited. His family didn't even consider it a possibility that he might be the future king of Israel. Later, after he's anointed... David's brother mocks him and berates him before the armies of Israel. Jesus also was rejected by his family. They thought he was out of his mind. And later, his brothers mock him about going to Jerusalem because they did not believe in him. Correspondence. In the type, the human king of Israel was forgotten by his family. In the antitype, the God-man king of kings was rejected by his family and dismissed as a madman. In the type, the young prince of Israel was mocked by his brothers before defeating the flesh and blood enemies of Israel. In the antitype, the eternal prince of Israel was mocked by his brothers before defeating death and the forces of darkness at the cross. Escalation. Correspondence and escalation. This story, then, about David being forgotten is a story about Jesus being rejected. Right? Let's keep moving. After Saul was rejected by God, a tormenting spirit was sent his way. He was miserable. And he sent his closest advisors to seek someone who might relieve his suffering. David was called upon to play the lyre. Miraculously, every time David played, the tormenting spirit would depart. Jesus also cast away harmful spirits. When the people of Israel were suffering, they would go to Jesus, just as Saul sent for David, and he would cast away tormenting spirits and bring peace to the broken just as Saul was comforted by David. That's correspondence. In the type, the coming king of Israel had authority to drive away one tormenting spirit. In the antitype, the coming king of kings had authority to drive away all tormenting spirits and all illness and even to drive away the curse of death. Amen? In the type, the coming king of Israel gave relief to one sufferer. In the antitype, the coming king of kings gave relief to all who were sick and hurting. 
And he shouted, come to me, ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In the type, the coming king of Israel brought relief from spiritual suffering temporarily. But in the antitype, the coming king of kings brings relief to spiritual suffering that lasts forever. Side note, if you are suffering, ask Jesus for help. He brings permanent relief. Amen? When David is fleeing the rage of Saul, he hides in a cave in the pagan wilderness. And while he's there, the most curious thing happens. All of the broken and the bitter flee to him. All of the social rejects, all of the men and women overwhelmed with debts. David becomes surrounded by the least of these who will become his company. Jesus also, after he wandered the wilderness, surrounded himself with disreputable associates, fishermen, tax collectors, political revolutionaries. Though his company was sought by the social elite, he was despised by them for allowing the worst types of people to surround him and to care for him and to weep over his feet as correspondence. But in the type, the king of Israel flees for his life and wanders the wilderness as a last resort. In the antitype, the king of kings steadily paces towards death and wanders the wilderness voluntarily to seek the lost sheep of Israel. In the type, the king of Israel is sought out by the least of these and he accepts them passively. In the antitype, the king of kings actively seeks out the least of these and says, follow me. And the wise and powerful will be shamed because Jesus sought and saved the foolish. Like me and you. In the type, the poor and humble become the mighty men of Israel. But in the antitype, the poor and humble would become the sons of God, co-heirs with Christ. Escalation. When Saul begins to suspect that David is the true king of Israel, he seeks his life with armies. David is forced to become homeless, to wander the countryside with a ragtag group of revolutionaries. In a moment of true irony, the pretender king sits upon the throne of Israel while the true king of Israel flees for his life. Jesus also was, re- was rejected by the established authorities in Israel. The Pharisees hated him and sought to ruin him. And when they failed, they sought his life. He was rejected by men, asked to leave cities, and forced to homeless wandering. The ruling sects of Israel who pretended to serve God actively undermined the work and words of Jesus, who was the Son of God. Escalation. In the type, the son of Jesse finds refuge in a cave. In the antitype, Jesus says foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to stay. 
In the type, David's life is sought by the ruler of Israel. In the antitype, the son of David's life is sought by the ruler of this world who will be cast out. In the type, the false king sought the life of the true king. In the antitype, the false faithful sought the life of the only one who has ever been faithful, period. The false righteous sought the life of the only one who has ever been righteous, period. Escalation. And these are just a few of the many shadows in the rise of David. These patterns were written into the story of Samuel to teach us the nature and character of the work of Jesus. I wasn't going to mention this one, but it's absolutely my favorite. But we're not going to cover it for like another uh, like 15 chapters. But once David becomes king, a usurper rises and casts him down from his rightful throne. Do you know what happens then? David ascends the Mount of Olives weeping. And then David is mocked by the people of Israel. And then David crosses over into the wilderness for guess how many days? Three days. And then he crosses back into the promised land and he ascends as the true king of Israel. Shadows. They're all shadows pointing forward to Jesus. And the reason we don't reject books like Samuel because they're really long and sometimes they're super weird is because the Spirit works in them to teach us of the character and law and works and, and words of, of, of Jesus, our coming King. Right? When we open this book to learn about David, we're really doing it to learn about Christ. And the real work of discipline will be to identify where the patterns lie. And when those patterns are are but a frail and grim shadow compared to the reality that we see in Jesus. So I have a challenge for you this week. We've just spent the better part of an hour exploring typology. And then doing the work of typology on a few passages we saw in David's life. You've got at least a few tools now. And it's time to get to work on the text. Next week, we're going to be reading 1 Samuel 23. Specifically, the first 14 verses. But, here's the challenge. Read 1 Samuel 23 several times. Whatever you do to study books, do that thing to 1 Samuel 23. Take notes, get a highlighter out, write in the margins... Whatever works for you. Read it, study it, know it, understand it. And then look for patterns. Maybe even step back to see if this passage is part of one of the larger patterns in the book of Samuel. Try to identify themes that might be developing. Get a mind for the shape of the story. Three. Recall the life and work of Jesus. Think about who he was and the sorts of things that he said and did. Remember the Gospels and reflect on them in light of the patterns that you found. And then four, 
Try to make connections. Try to identify types. You may do this and decide there are none, which is totally fine. You may think there really aren't any shadows in 1 Samuel 23. But I I want you to try because when you're trying to read the Old Testament, you can't do the work of interpreting the text without asking these sorts of questions. And I want to continue to sharpen that skill together. So that's the homework. Now here's, here's the takeaway. If God has been faithful from the very beginning to promise a Messiah who would rescue His people from their sins and to promise a coming kingdom where there will no, no, more, no longer be suffering, where there will no longer be sin, to promise a Sabbath's rest. If he, had, if, if he has been faithful to promise those things and to see that thing unfold in all of the events that we read about in the Old Testament and to see that thing unfold and be fulfilled in the work of Christ, don't despair about temporary sufferings right now. We're about to enter a new year. Make it your goal when you think about problems this year, when you think about trials and obstacles this year, make it your goal to remember the faithfulness of God that has unfolded from the moment that He began creating. Through every word that He inspired, through every work He accomplished in Christ, to every bit of the Spirit working in His church, all the way to right now where we're all sitting around reflecting on the coming kingdom. Remember that faithfulness. And trust that the next season he's going to be just as faithful. Amen? All right, let's pray. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.